Hello, and welcome to An Endless Pursuit, a podcast on innovation from Bristol Water. My name is Chris Thomas, and I look after the Quest, our open innovation program that's on a never-ending pursuit for progress. As part of this, I've been speaking with a number of internal and external experts to explore where the industry should be headed. We want to share our findings and are publishing them in this podcast. The series explores a number of different themes, and today we're looking at the theme of networks, all of those pipes that exist underground. And how do you use them to move a product around that's very heavy, fundamental to human life in the operation of a city, but isn't worth very much financially? When you look at the challenges the water industry faces, some of the biggest ones are found in how we manage our network assets. Keeping customers on supply, reducing leakage, preventing disruption to customers when you do have to make repairs. And our starting point for tackling all of these challenges is from our legacy assets, where the materials and fittings used are not what you choose today, nor are the designs necessarily how we would have built them if we were starting from scratch. I meet with Frank van der Klee and Ivan Stoyanov to explore this. Frank is the head of asset risk and planning at Bristol Water and has responsibility for network asset performance through risk management, development of interventions and delivery assurance of our investment programme. He has an MSc in rural engineering from Cranfield University, is a chartered environmentalist and a committee member for the Institute of Water in the Southwest. He has over 20 years experience in water management and has provided consultancy services on several non-revenue water projects in Central and Southeast Asia. Ivan is a senior lecturer in water systems engineering and his research explores the next generation of resilient water supply networks that can dynamically adapt their connectivity, hydraulic conditions and operational objectives. This is a new category of engineering called cyber-physical, these systems combine physical processes with computational control in a holistic way. Ivan has founded and leads a cross-disciplinary research group, InfraSense Labs, which has a current research portfolio in excess of 2.5 million. He's also the co-founder of Inflamatics, which allows utilities to continuously diagnose the fluid dynamics in networks in order to reduce bursts, operating costs and uncertainty in hydraulic modelling. The three of us explore how industry and university collaborations are helping us to address the challenges of network management and where we need to make further progress. I hope you enjoy listening. Frank, Ivan, thanks for joining me today. We're exploring innovation in how we manage our networks, so how we keep control of water that we're moving from A to B. To help us get our heads around the topic, Frank, what are the top challenges that we face when it comes to network management? And what is it? There's a significant number of challenges that we have to manage our water distribution network and our water distribution network essentially starts when it leaves a treatment work and when water comes out of a customer's tap. That network essentially is almost 7,000 kilometers long and we've got half a million customers supplied from that network with a number of services that supply these customers. That means that we've got a significant challenge across a number of performance commitments towards our customers. And those can mainly be split between areas of water quality, but also interruption to supplies and reducing leakage levels. The performance commitments that we've put towards our customers and our support by our customers are split between areas of water quality, network maintenance, i.e. approving resilience for our customers. So reducing the numbers of interruptions reducing burst mains, and above all, and very much supported by our customers, is around um, reducing leakage levels in our distribution network. And across those different commitments, I guess, what are the biggest challenges we face in trying to deliver them? Well, 7,000 kilometers of network is of a relatively old age. So our average age of our distribution network is around 60 years some of those mains have been in the ground for more than 100 years. So there's a real challenge in ensuring that those mains and services are still fit for purpose, i.e. providing the right level of water quality with the least amount of interruptions and therefore low leakage levels. Leakage is an area of a performance commitment which is fully supported by our customers. Wastage is not good. Any level of wastage on a network, if that's energy wastage or water wastage, is not good for us, for our customers and for our environment. So leakage reduction is one of our prime commitments towards our customers. Water quality is almost something that is a given. We want to ensure that our water quality is as high as we possibly can achieve. But leakage is a real challenge that 
is actually becoming uh, more of a challenge over time because of the environmental impact, the long-term impact on our water resources. And what in your mind then is the direction of travel when we've got emerging innovations in, in, in networks that, that help us meet some of those big challenges? So one of the main emerging innovations in network is the increasing level of sensor deployment. So as our network is vast and we can't uh, monitor every part of our network in an easy way, most of our pipes are buried and our services are buried below the ground. So we deploy an increasing amount of sensors on the network to essentially give us additional information to manage our network effectively. Now, sensor technology has developed significantly over the last two decades and data and information have become much more readily available from those points in the network that previously we didn't have a degree of visibility. So what we started about 20 years ago was to compartmentalize some of those areas in the network to smaller zones. So we basically sectorized our network into much smaller areas and started to deploy sensors on those areas. That sensor technology now has become much more available. Sensors have become more affordable as well. And data and communication has improved to such a stage that you can continuously monitor your network to quite a high degree of detail. Using that information, you can then inform your decision-making and directly deal with issues before they become an issue for our customers. So, for example, by applying more sensors on a much more detailed level within your distribution network, you can inform your decisions before they start impacting upon our customers. So interruptions to supplies is something that we can avoid by having better sensor technology better data, create information of that data that can help us making decisions before they start impacting on our customers. And that is where innovation has become much more stronger in the last couple of years. And I guess that's where we've done a lot of work recently with Imperial and, and Ivan and looking at what we describe as our, our field lab. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so the, the field lab started around seven years ago and the field lab essentially took some of those smaller zones within a network where we had a challenge in terms of improving the resilience in that area, the water quality, but also manage that network in a far calmer manner so that we avoid any issues happening in that area that would impact upon our customers. So we took those areas and we created what we call a field lab. So essentially the field lab is a number of sectors put together and by looking at those sectors in far greater detail by applying many more sensors in that area that give us good data good information real-time monitoring but also enable us to move water around in that area in a far more advanced hydraulic manner we created what we call is a calm network and we can modify that network in such a way that it has got far less impact on our customers. It actually improves the resilience in that area. It improves water quality. And by creating a calmer network, you actually reduce the number of mains burst and also reduce leakage. So it is looking at network management in a far more holistic manner and in applying additional technology in that area so that you can really advance the way we manage a network in a different way than we've done over the last couple of decades. And when you say it's a calm network, what do you mean by that? So by calm network, essentially Bristol, the topography in Bristol is quite variable. So by default, the pressure of water within the network varies from connection to connection. So each different customer has got a different level of water pressure in their main. Now, ideally, we want that pressure not to vary too much because that fluctuation can actually cause additional stress on your pipes. But we also want to provide a good level of service towards our customers. And by giving a almost guaranteed level of pressure without too much variability, that helps both our customer, but also puts less stress on what is already an aging network. So if we can reduce the stress on the pipe by reducing pressure, we create what we 
call is a calm network. Great. And Ivan, you're on the imperial side of this collaboration. Can you explain a little bit about what the role of imperial is and, and, and what you do in, in that? Sure. Good, good morning, Ken, and just thank you for inviting me today. Just uh, while listening to Frank, uh, a couple of things came to my mind. Uh, the first thing is that we, we all have the perception that water is free and somehow it just rains all the time and it's widely available and etc. But But when we look at the water is uh, providing clean, safe water 24-7 continuously, that's not free. That requires a fairly substantial infrastructure, which Frank has just outlined. You know, buying bottled water in the shop, we, we pay a huge price. And equally, having that sort of high quality water with, uh, you know, good public health confidence in, in the water we get, that, that's not a free exercise. And, and it requires a lot of energy, a lot of effort, a lot of pumping and a lot of technical knowledge and skills to be able to do that the way we're doing in the UK. So that, that's one of the first things is, is just kind of coming back to the discussion of water and uh, why that's sort of such a complex systems we need to put in place. The other thing is, uh, it also reminds me, uh, a few years ago, British Medical Journal ran this uh, survey of its readers because it had an anniversary about 167 years. And one of the questions was, what was the biggest innovation happened for the last 167 years? And clearly there is a lot of competition from the germ theory, from all sorts of different innovation in the medical sphere, in the, in the computational, different uh, computing kind of up. And one of the biggest innovation that came was clean water and sanitation. And purely the reason for that is because there's no any other technology which allowed the human life expectancy to more than double as a result of the provision of clean water. And we, we take this for granted now. We just, uh, you know, we don't think, we, we just waste water, we don't think about the cost of water. And that's, again, another thing. We, we are hugely privileged that with the technologies and systems we have in place, we are able to deliver this kind of a service to across a very broad population. So that's a kind of a little bit what I was listening to Frank. It just came to my mind. But another thing in answer to your question, what Imperial and what uh, general academic research brings to that, a lot of components. I mean, it, it brings clearly working with experts such as Frank and uh, his team, very much kind of shaped a lot of our vision and innovation from a point of view of uh, how do we actually combine a multiple elements from sensing technology to mathematical modeling, uh, very advanced optimization methods, very advanced control methods. So there is a very cross-disciplinary capabilities that need to be put in place to think about the water supply as a system and deliver that system with the capabilities we just mentioned. So as a result of that, it's, it's not a one-person effort. It's not one organization effort. And the, the kind of the collaboration interactions between individuals and institutions becomes extremely critical. And you described a lot there in terms of what goes into running and the field lab, I suppose, and creating these calm networks that Frank described. What's your role in that chain of different events from the, the instrumentation to the physical assets to the mathematics? Sure. I mean, we call it a field lab. It's uh, probably slightly misleading that it's a lab. It's actually a complex operational network. And we are trying to really push innovation in an in sensing, innovation, in modeling, hydraulic modeling, having these real-time mathematical models that uh, kind of show the, the distribution of pressure and flow into the systems. We then use these models to optimize the control uh, with different objectives, which I'll mention in a moment. So as a result of that, there are all these different components that need to fit for the whole system to work effectively. And when we sort of uh, we started looking into that, it's clearly... The first challenge was having the ability to monitor the pressure and flow with a very high spatial and temporal resolution. And that has never been done before. So that was one of the biggest initial challenges. The second challenge we had was to take something which we called control valves and then automate these control valves so they can be self-powered, so they can power itself, and they can also provide very advanced control functions into the system. So these were our pieces of the technologies, but when you kind of raise above these pieces of technologies all the analytics that sits there, which says, how does that network is going to operate in terms of changing its connectivity, changing its pressure and flow conditions, 
while at the same time providing not affecting customers and providing much better service to these customers. So that's the kind of the interface of all these technologies, but also interface with the analytical element of this, you know, the very advanced mathematical physical based models, which shows the propagation of pressure and flow, and then use that to actually control the system in a very effective way. It's been the innovation, if you wish, of putting everything together, not just developing the individual piece of technology, but actually putting it all together. And you mentioned there the one of the challenges around the, the hardware that's being installed and, and the valves that are self-powered. Frank, I, w- I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what the difference is there between those valves and, and what you might see in the average network. So one of the challenges we continue to have is to bring power to supply those sensors that we got available in the network with enough energy to be able to communicate on a frequency that we really want to have, as well as the amount of data that need to be transferred. That is a challenge across the industry. Energy and power is an issue to bring power to fairly remote areas below the ground in a chamber in a network is a challenge. So when we looked at it um, uh, from a field lab point of view, it soon became clear that to maximize the benefits, we need to improve power provision. And one area that we looked at was to use micro turbines. So together with um, Clave, other valve manufacturer, we came up with a solution that essentially is able to power a sensor with enough power to communicate for every half an hour with a certain degree of data. And that's been quite successful. There's still a challenge in terms of the cost benefits across a longer period, but it's very, very clear that the benefits of having data available on a far more frequent level is very valuable and we need to make in additional investments. And certainly the actual power monitors, the power harvesting that we've done locally is one way of doing that. And that's significantly different what we do from our normal network operation, where we essentially we import power by putting additional batteries inside the chamber to actually maximize the usage of that particular sensor, which is not really a sustainable solution. And that's going to be one of our main challenges moving forward. With all those sensors, the increased sensors on the network, which are really part of improving our network management, is to how can we ensure that we got a sustainable power source? And I can see these kind of local integrated solutions as a way forward. And that in itself will stimulate more innovation in terms of making that happen. And you started to touch on some of the benefits that we're seeing from the field lab. Are you you able to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so the field lab has been in place for about six years now. And we've seen a number of areas of benefits. We're still evolving the field lab in terms of the way we operate it, the way we extract data, how often we extract data. Ivan mentioned before the hydraulic modeling that we're doing, that in itself will give us more information, particularly when that becomes near real-time hydraulic modeling. But we've already seen some clear benefits in terms of local resilience. So the level of interruptions to supply, when we have issues on the network, we do get bursts. If those bursts happen, we've seen a real improvement in terms of the local resilience. Just for example, we had a major burst main in an adjacent area of the network in 2014, which impacted a significant amount of customers in that area. Because of the hydraulic nature of the field lab and the the way we could adapt our network hydraulically, the impact on customers within the field lab was significantly less than it would have been if we would have operated it in the normal way we've done for the rest of our network. So local resilience improvements have been one of the key benefits of the field lab. Water quality has been another issue that previously when we've got fixed networks, all the fixed networks have boundaries which are fixed. When we would want to open those boundaries for one reason or another, that potentially can impact on the water quality of customers. The field lab, we saw those boundaries being managed on a periodic basis, and that actually improved the whole water quality around those boundaries. So the impact and the potential impact on our customers in terms of water quality has been significantly reduced by the creation of the field lab. Some of the key benefits that we've seen as a result of the creation of the field lab on our customers has been a more than 10% reduction in background 
leakage in the area. We've also seen a significant reduction in bursts happening. Burst frequency reduced by about 80%. As a result as well, we've seen a reduction in the amount of water quality complaints in that area over the last six years. And more importantly, we have not been having to intervene in terms of doing a systematic mains flushing program for that whole period, which is currently what we would do as a preventative maintenance program to reduce water quality complaints in other areas. So the overall impact has been significant, bearing in mind that we're still evolving the way we manage the field lab. And we think that we can create a much calmer network over time that reduces leakage levels and burst mains even further from the levels we've seen reduced over the last six years already. It's great to hear the kind of real world impact that it can have. As we stretch our thinking and we look ahead, because a lot of people are, are tackling similar issues around how you manage ever-increasing smart networks, if you like. Ivan, what, what do you see as the direction of travel and the challenges we still have yet to solve and resolve? Well, I, I think it's uh, clearly this new way of managing the network by changing its connectivity and also hydraulic condition has a lot to do with improving both the operational performance, like as we discussed, you know, managing pressure in a very optimal way, reducing the number of leakage, etc. But equally also has the ability to deliberately put this network in a different state from a point of view of detecting leaks or, or, or deliberately changing hydraulic conditions in order to improve particular parameters or variables in the operation of these networks. So it gives a huge flexibility. Now the question is then this flexibility now we want to exploit to demonstrate these multiple values which the dynamically adaptive networks can bring to the table because inevitably there is a, an additional investment that needs to be made to, to be able to realize this on a very large scale. But unless this, we have uh, sufficient evidence how all these benefits fit together from leakage, from water quality perspective, from the ability to respond to incidents, then it's very difficult to, to make that sort of cost balance calculations, particularly in, in the current financial environment. So for us, the challenges, the academic challenges, is very much to create this or formulate this novel way of mathematical optimization problem and solve this optimization problem to maximize the operational value in managing this new kind of networks. Dynamic adaptation is a key word for any forms of system that has to tolerate failures and has to be able to respond to failures. And to ask a really simple question, how's that going? You have to bear in mind that uh, the water industry is a very cautious industry. I mean, clearly it's not Uber, it's not the kind of the tech industry, which uh, suddenly things can might grow very aggressively. And I fully understand the water industry has to deliver water with a very high level of confidence and reliability. So, so it's been a, a slow journey, but we've seen through the fact that the field lab has become a template for adoption by many other water companies in the UK. We run very similar field labs now with United Utilities, uh, Seven Trent Water, Anglian Water. And, th and that sort of starts to become, rather than being uh, this outlier in activity, becomes a little bit more mainstream activity. And as more water companies start bringing this evidence of the benefits which these new forms of dynamic adaptation within their networks can bring, I believe it's becoming far more mainstream in terms of the scalability and the adoption. And we, we had a, an interesting conversation just offline, as it were, earlier around um, a lot of people would view this area as something that you can sort of throw machine learning at and, um, and let it just go and solve all the problems. But this isn't machine learning, is it? Can you, can you explain yeah, um, why it's not what it is and, and you know, why that's not, it's, it's not an easy quick fix like that? Okay, so machine learning is clearly a huge buzzword and artificial intelligence on top of machine learning. What we have here is a complex networks. The distribution and flow and pressure and also the various water quality parameters, they change continuously. They change during the day, they change during seasons. There is a huge variations. For example, Bristol Water might be doing some changes in the in the operational changes that will change completely the behavior of the network and etc. So the notion of this typical We'll throw a lot of sensors and we'll suddenly magically learn how this network behave based on some machine learning methods. It sounds very kind of attractive, 
one can very quickly start running different mathematical methods to, to deliver this. But the truth is that if I change my connectivity tomorrow, if I change and I want to explore different operational control strategies, I can't do that through machine learning. And then the other thing is that we have very good physical-based models. We have we build our hydraulic models based on the conservation of mass, the conservation of energy. And what that allows me is that I don't need to just know how my system behaved in the past to be able to predict the behavior in the future in a very high granularity and under different scenarios with a huge confidence. And we can do that with the hydraulic models. Now, I don't say that machine learning doesn't have a role to play. And clearly, we start seeing the emerging of these hybrid methods and approaches where we run our hydraulic-based models, but equally we complement these models with a certain machine learning methods, whether this is related to the condition monitoring of a specific asset, or it gives us additional confidence that when we detect the leaks, that might be reaffirmed by some of the machine learning methods, etc. So there's a different strategies one can plan, certainly. Through what we've done through the field lab, we've demonstrated that we really opened the, if you wish, the Pandora box of, of how to play with all these different methods so that we have so many opportunities on the table of bringing better value in terms of understanding how the system behaves, but also controlling how the system should behave. And it's based very much on that physical understanding and the engineering of what's actually going on. So our conversation has gone a bit gone along a bit of a chronology i'd say i think we we started with the water industry beginning to segment its networks to understand small areas and we've moved into the sort of the modern challenges of today with increased instrumentation and some of the difficulties there frank you're alluding to getting power and if we stretch much further ahead into the future and i say much I, I'm, I'm thinking sort of five or ten years what do you see is the next biggest difference that is really going to make a step change in how we manage our networks, which may or may not be limited to the the, the domain we talked around today around sort of instrumentation and, and control. If that, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. I'll be interested in both of your, your views. Uh, in, in my view, the challenges which Frank mentioned, they'll get worse and worse. And that will make us a bit more aware as a, as a society about the investment we need to be making in this critical infrastructure. So we saw last year the beast from the east. Uh, we suddenly lost southwest London, uh, had huge problems in water, and, and people started appreciating then the value of water. So as all these climate variations become more extreme, the, the age of our infrastructure is getting more older and older, is increasing. That sort of events, if we're not maintaining a better understanding, increase our level of understanding, increase the kind of, based on this understanding, how we can renovate and how we can, you know, improve our network, inevitably we might reach that cliff edge where things will get quite, uh, will have a quite a big societal impact. So the challenge here, uh, I believe, going in the future is to be able to gather this better, start getting more and more understanding how these networks behave and then being able to impact that behavior so we can increase their life cycle. And then far more optimally, we utilize the resources we have at present. Yeah, I can see that. It's, it's interesting when you look at big trends across society almost where it's been about getting understanding very early before we have to act later. So things like climate change, where gradually we've just grown and grown our knowledge and but we've been a bit late to the party where we've just suddenly found out that really we're a bit too late and we need to do something very quickly about it. Similarly, plastic pollution, you know, we've gathered lots and lots of information, but the, the problem is already enormous. So I guess you're saying the same thing for network management and, and, and chasing the age of those assets. Let's get understanding quickly before we get to what could become a bit of a cliff edge moment. Correct. I mean, it's very much, I mean, I, I, I was having a chat with my teenage girls a few days ago because they're all kind of coming in that we need to be more environmentally friendly and we need to do x y and z and at the same time have a shower of two hours it's not quite out environmental friendliness so so i think it's coming to a point where the higher visibility we can bring through and people get far more you know, better understanding of the complexity and challenges we face then we can have a, a much better discussion of the level of investment that needs to go into these systems so that that we make sure that they can continue to deliver the same level of service in the future. And Frank, how about you? From, from where you sit and what you see, what do you think is going to really make a difference for us on, on that slightly longer time span? Yeah, so, I mean, we talked about before about how we have to manage a network, which is A, quite old, it's B, we can't see it because it's below the ground, and C, we've got a 
different environment now whereby we've got performance commitments that become harder. Yeah, the performance has to improve over time. At the same time, as Ivan mentioned, we've got other stresses on the network. We've got variable weather patterns that are becoming worse and, and more difficult to anticipate and therefore difficult to manage. So put those three areas together and it highlights the challenge that we have over not just the next five to 10 years, but the next 20 to 30 years. At the same time, we're producing new networks so we've got a challenge there to build our networks for the future, but at the same time still manage our existing networks. The way that I can see us maximizing managing those networks is by applying these kind of concepts, such as the field lab, to ensure that we can understand how can we actually maintain and manage those assets in the best way over the next 10 years. We talked about data, improved data will give us better information. And we can start homing into some of those assets that we can't see, but we can anticipate their behavior on the different conditions and their impact on different performance commitments. So to use that data, to maximize the use of that data, to create information that influences our decision-making is going to be key. And there's going to be a kind of increasing level of benefits there over a short period. And then we need to see at what stage we can't maximize that any further. And we have to bring in other innovative ways of working or, or, or technologies that we can then apply on top of that. We've got a long way to go. We still don't know enough about our assets. We know about how our network behaves, but we don't quite know how about how our individual pipe works behaves under different conditions. And we think by using these kind of initiatives and working closely with the universities, not just on this particular topic, but going into it in far greater detail will help with managing those expectations and bringing those performance commitments. Yeah, it's quite encouraging to hear that actually with some of those stretching performance commitments, we still seem to be in a place with these kind of concepts around network management where we're not in the place of diminishing returns. We're still reaping great benefits and kind of accelerating what we can get out of it rather than having the conversation of when do we dial it down and when do we stop? Actually, it's how, how quickly can we dial it up? It so, will never happen. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. And I think we're still very much working in a reactive manner. Yeah, we're reacting to events, we're reacting to high leakage levels rather than proactively looking at ways that we can actually minimize the impact or at least avoiding when that impact becomes beyond the level that we, we are happy with. And there's still a long way to go with that. But by maximizing the focus on individual networks through the detailed analysis that we're doing now through the field lab, is understanding how can we mimic that kind of behavior on, on the other 90% of our network and ensuring that we have the right level of interrogation on those networks to be able to meet our performance commitments on those particular area under varying environmental circumstances. Because as, as Ivan mentioned, when you get a very harsh winter or even a very dry summer, those impacts on the network are not well understood. The immediate impact is, but the impact on asset life over a longer period is still not quite well understood. So it's understanding how those events have an impact on your asset life and how we can actually manage our network better to be more resilient against those kind of impacts. I think there's a, there's a great line of study in there really to, to, to get our heads around that. Changing tax slightly then, one of the things that's got us this far and has, has worked really well is, is how industry and universities have collaborated together, so Bristol Water and Imperial and, and Clay Val with the dynamic valves that they've introduced. Ivan, maybe I could come to you first again and, and, and just explain why do you think collaborations between industry and universities are a good way to tackle some of these challenges and, and what do both parties get out of it? Well, I think it was a, a very unique template for collaboration which we created here. First of all, it's... Um, Again, innovation comes, you know, requires a lot of ingredients, requires sort of technology, requires the vision, requires the expertise, uh, and mixing that vision with empirical knowledge, it, it becomes hugely critical. I mean, I'll give one example. Let's say when we were developing the notion of this uh, dynamically adaptive control valves, I mean, they are very sophisticated pieces of technology. If you think the valve in itself, this is something what we call uh, a globe valve with a membrane, it's a hundred year old, but what's the innovation? 
innovation on top of that is rather than having a, a technician with a spanner changing the position of the valve, we're actually to use the, the energy from the flow and the differential, the pressure differential across the valve to be able to position, not just power the valve, extract a micro turbine and extract some energy, but also start introducing very sophisticated forms of control on a very large valve, something which we were only able to do previously with a three-phase power supply, and now we can do it with a microturbine that generates about 20 milliwatts of power. And the way we did that, we, we started, first of all, with the concepts about what control we want to do in terms of how the, the, the relationship between flow, pressure, or, or position control, or some more advanced forms of relationships we want to build, what we want to actually achieve. We then actually did a huge amount of experimental validation in the labs at Imperial and also the labs in Clayval, Switzerland. It was really a very agile method of kind of changing pilots, testing different hydraulic behavior, immediately making modification, putting it back on the, on the test rig testing it again, until we got relatively good confidence that we've taken this prototype, put it in Bristol water, but we continue monitoring these valves with a, a quite a sophisticated uh, approach. Uh, it's almost like like Formula One. I mean, we, we were monitoring these valves with about 128 samples per second in terms of key variables, pressure, stem position, etc. And we've been doing that for several years now because that allows us to see what are the real operational challenges and conditions and then very quickly go back refine some of the design and put it back in the field. So even from that perspective, that collaboration was hugely unique because on one side, we couldn't put prototypes. We were not confident because we might affect the supply to customers. But the second thing is that the actual modeling work, the experimental work, which went behind the development of these valves and making them able to sort of operate under huge variations in hydraulic conditions uh, was only possible through this kind of bringing that expertise from technology providers such as Clayval, uh, the expertise from Bristol Water and a lot of the modeling stuff done by Imperial. So so that was that's one example. And Frank, how have you, how have you found the collaboration? What, what, in general terms, is it, what does it bring to industry and, and to universities? Yeah, I mean, for me, this has been a really positive experience. It's essential to have a right mix of expertise that a collaboration brings. And if you look at this collaboration, which was between a manufacturer, a water utility, as well as a university, I think you really got that right balance between technology, operating a network, and an entity, in this case, Imperial College, who could really challenge the way we operate a network. And I think that's for me the important things about collaboration between universities and water utilities is about universities are really can challenge the way we do things, how we've done things over many, many years, how we can improve things. And they can really look at the, the causes of some of these challenges that we have to deal with and really dig down into what we would say is, is quite nitty gritty. We haven't got time to deal with that. But that's fundamentally what we should be doing as a base level in improving our performance to really understand why is this happening? How can we make it different? And how can we deal with things in a much more advanced manner over time? And that model is something that we can then look at and say, well, at what time do we apply different levels of that model? Uh, the field lab is a good example of a model of how we think we could really operate our network in a far more challenging manner. That doesn't mean we operate every piece of our network in that way, but it's a model that we can actually calibrate against different part of our network and say, well, that's where we could use that model. And in other areas, we have a slightly lighter version of that idea of that concept, still gaining the benefits that we think it can bring. But that's for me where the university really was enabled to just push us that bit further and challenge us in the way we operate and really look ahead that 10, 20, 30 years that we need to look at. It really sounds like it, it sort of lands on those sort of buzzword statements like creative tension where they, there's just the right kind of expertise around but but separation from the day-to-day -to, -day to, to sort of push us along and, and challenge us and keep us going. How do you think then we can do more of that. How can we come closer as universities and industry to drive some closer collaborations and many more tangible innovations like the, like the valves and the, and the, and the modelling that we, we've seen from this project? Frank, maybe you could comment. I think things are 
certainly moving in the right direction. I think we've seen various Water UK research projects where universities are brought into the whole research and the actual problem solving at an early stage. And that's quite often done in a collaborative manner whereby the water companies tender for a certain research project and then quite often consultants, manufacturers and universities already tender for that project as a kind of joint kind of tripartite entity. So we've already seen some positive movements that universities are getting more engaged into these type of research projects. But I think we can do more and the universities are far better in terms of gaining support that might be financial support or funds that are available for doing projects. So I think as a water utility, we need to get ourselves into that same kind of remit. It's not often that we as water utilities try to gain funding for certain research or innovation. There might be better ways of doing that together with universities because they've already got that level of expertise. We've got knowledge of managing our network. We've got challenges there that need more enhancement, more engagement with stakeholders such as universities. So I think actually the time is probably about right to explore other ways of doing that so that we can strengthen that link between universities and, and water utilities. But I've certainly seen improvements or certainly enhancements in, in the degree of level of involvement from universities in, in utility projects. And how about yourself, Ivan? It's like a relationship, isn't it? It's sort of you build that. You, you need the right people, you need the right partners. And it's sometimes it's fantastic, sometimes can be hugely frustrating. And as far as you, you, you know your common goal and objectives, and you, you have that sort of level of understanding and passion and commitment, then it's a doable exercise. What we've seen here is that uh, when we started initially, it's great to have this relationship because sometimes we see things quite long away. And then uh, uh, Frank and uh, his colleagues who are very heavily involved, like Kevin Henderson, et cetera, they will challenge us. They will say, look, I, I mean, I can, I can see this is a great idea, but we, these are the kind of the problems we need to solve before we came to that point or, or we come to that point. So, so as a result of that, it kind of pushes it back and say, well, can we actually change the formulation of some of our optimization problem so that we, we not just kind of provide a certain gradual evolution of the networks and the systems and the, how they are managed and do that in a manner that allows that evolution to happen, not just over the next five years, but actually happen over the next 10, 15 years horizon. And that's been hugely beneficial. Uh, and in the end of the day, that allows us to, first of all, for us to formulate these problems in a different ways, introduce different constraints or use some of our uh, just to give you an idea, some of the optimization problems we solve, they're, they're, what we have this sort of notion of mixed integer nonlinear problems. And they're, they're very complex to solve with huge number of variables and et cetera. But when we start taking into account some of the uncertainty bounds we operate, when we operate these networks in reality, these uncertainty bounds that can be translated to bounds in, in our optimization problems, which makes it far more solvable and tractable. So in other words, we're really merging that sort of advances in mathematical optimization with the advances and knowledge of what can we actually comfortably live in the real world with uncertainties we have inherent into these networks. And that's been hugely beneficial, not just to demonstrate academic rigor, but actually really solving problems. There's an interesting line in there, I think, between what you've both said then that I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering about where, where Frank, you, you talked about each party having its own strengths and universities being very good at accessing funding. And Ivan, you were talking about the nature of it being a relationship. Now, many funds often are, are time bound, so they might be one or two years to do X, Y and Z. But a relationship is quite long. You know, in, the, in today's example, we've been working together much more than just the one or two years that, that, that funding might exist for. Do you think it's right that universities and industry should be seeking long-term collaborations? And if that is the answer, are we not quite set up with the right funding arrangements currently? Or should, that, should, should we change that? Do we have influence over it? Well, my view is that absolutely, you, you're spot on. I mean, a lot of the research funds we get, the, the, first of all, our research funding is squeezed more and more through the kind of government research for 
all sorts of different reasons. But equally, the, the research funds uh, are far more, in terms of the technology development, they're far more biased towards fundamental research with a bit of applied research. What we see here is we are almost covering the whole scale from a very fundamental research to very applied research. And it's extremely complex to get actually funding to do that. What I see from my perspective, wearing my hat as an academic, that off-world in the general water industries doing very little in terms of really bringing money for that sort of notion of applied research. So there is a, probably a huge question there why this is not the case, because it's already happening in, in the gas, electrical networks, and et cetera, but it's not happening to the same extent in the water kind of domain and water networks. But you're absolutely spot on. You know, short-term projects, one, two, three years, relatively limited to provide the kind of the benefits what we've demonstrated here over a period of seven, eight, nine years. And, and the reason why we were able to demonstrate is because there was a huge element of fundamental research, technology research, but we were fortunate enough to be able to kind of bring that funding to allow that collaboration to evolve and develop and, and finally start bringing the, the outcomes of that work. No, I think relationships are fundamentally important in different ways. On the one hand, we need to explore the opportunities to have a longer term relationship with, for example, universities and make that much more of a fixed entity supporting our innovation challenges, supporting our different ways of working and meeting our performance commitment challenges that we have over the next five years. But I think there's also a lot of opportunities around short term relationships. We've seen through the work with Imperial College some some real good short-term projects whereby an MSc student was able to do a project maybe for three or six months just by looking at a set of data, a set of circumstances and, and model that and try to, as part of their MSc dissertation studies, to come up with a number of questions and, and, and answers to those questions. And that's been quite successful. And I would say that that kind of applied research has got a direct benefit because it might actually answer something that we've not had the time to be able to do. It's not because we don't know how to do it, but it's been an ideal kind of way of collaborating. A, it's benefited student in terms of a very relevant research project on the short term. And it gives us the opportunity to build up relationships beyond that long term. So it has to be a balance between long term and short term, but certainly the long term relationships I think as an industry, we need to find a much more coherent way of setting a long-term relationship between universities and what you take these up. Because at the moment, it's driven very much by the universities rather than the industry. And if I change tack now, just to draw us to a close, we've, we've had this podcast series all about innovation. So we're stretching our minds into the future and where things might go. And as a bit of fun to finish, I'm interested in what you think might be the most disappointing innovation in the next few years. What's what's going to let us down a little bit? Who's going to be bold enough to uh, give an answer first? Yeah, so I've got two disappointing innovations that I think for me are important over the next two years. One is self-healing pipes. We've talked about self-healing pipes and service pipes for many, many years now. Self-healing pipes are an answer to a lot of our problems. If you've got a deficiency on a, a network or deficiency of a pipe and you've got the ability for a pipe to fix itself, then that solves a lot of the issues. Now, self-healing pipes, the concept of self-healing pipes has been talked about for many, many years. I think we will continue to talk about it a lot over the next couple of years, but I can't see anything happening soon in that particular area. So it's something really that I think we need to look over the long term and kind of park that for the time being. The other area, I believe, which will probably not come up with the benefits that we, we, we would like to see is, is around augmented reality. So several years ago, we had the Google Glasses and everybody liked what they saw. You put your Google Glasses up and if you then applied it to the water industry, can you then use your Google Glasses to actually visualize the network whilst you walk around? You can actually look at the condition of piece of pipe work, where to dig, where to potentially even find and pinpoint leaks by just having your glasses. Now, Google Glasses are not on the market anymore. And we have been talking about augmented reality. I still believe that is probably further off from how I think we can use it 
from a practical manner on a day-to-day basis. So those are, are, for me, the two areas, augmented reality as well as self-healing pipes. They're probably innovations that we need to look at over a longer period. Ivan? Well, can I say innovation by PowerPoint? And it's sort of like, you know, innovation is a huge buzzword now in the water industry. Collaboration is a huge buzzword. Uh, but I think that the kind of the, whether it's the regulatory framework or the environment this is happening, is woefully inadequate. So there is a huge interest to my mind at the moment. But, uh, and there's a certainly a lot of energy people trying to put into that. But unless we have the kind of the structure and recognition funding and et cetera to do it, I think it would just remain a buzzword. And, and that would be a huge missed opportunity because all the challenges we are facing, they need to be resolved. We are also seeing from academic perspective is that we have young people, very talented young people, and they, they want to be involved in the water industry. But they don't see that water industry as the kind of the sexy technology, whatever field. So as a result of that, we are probably missing on a lot of young talent, which might be going to outlets that are probably not the most socially responsible. And that's kind of, again, it's a challenge we're trying to solve on a very complex systems with a huge societal impact. And unless we really start putting that proactive innovation in place, it's very difficult to see how a change can happen. And so to push you a little bit on the, the structures around innovation, you, you mentioned talent there, which, which I think everyone can recognize. Was there something more specific that you see as sort of a hole in that we should be plugging? I think it's if you think about it, if you're a, a capable 23-year-old in this world who, who has a good mathematical skills and uh, you're ambitious to solve these problems, what is attractive to you? You know, is the environment you work with, with the data you work with, with the financial kind of remuneration you have. So there's a quite a lot of components that need to fit together. And if you're the same environment, 23-year-old, and you go to an industry which basically says, we've been doing that for the last 60, 70 years, there's no need to change. The excitement is just simply not there. So I think it's that's where it's sort of with everything we talk today, more sensors, more kind of ability to understand, control, whatever tools with hydraulic models, machine learning, artificial intelligence. It's a very exciting environment and it has a lot of societal impact to my mind. And we, if we can capture that, whether it's whatever framework through regulatory framework or whatever other framework we need to be put in place to really enable that innovation and, and this creativity to happen, it's something we should be aspiring to and doing it. Fantastic. It's a good call to finish with there. Well, thank you both for your time today and, and, and sharing your insights. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on our innovation quest. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and if it has sparked any thoughts on where we could work together to push the industry forwards, we'd love to hear from you. Please do go to our website or contact us through innovation at bristolwater.co.uk. 